Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Waves of energy are all around us. Some pass through us unseen and unfelt. Others we can detect, we see them with our eyes or, or we feel them as warmth on our skin. And still others can be damaging to us. Understanding and harnessing these waves of energy has led us to the instantaneous round-the-world communication we are capable of today. Your microphone is it's not on. We are calling it iPhone. Yes, we can. Must always blow on the pie. But this all started with radio waves. Radio began before any of them, and it's still going strong. There's just something special about radio: this wireless way of sending information through the air. The technology is amazing. I'm more thinking of it. Now, my how do I? Welcome to our changing world. Cool, Clark and Cannon DNA. Today we explore the beginning of radio in Aotearoa a hundred years ago. We discover the nature of radio waves, and we learn about new physics research to improve sending information via light. First, a step back in time with Pete Reed, the curator at Toitu Otago Settlers Museum. I caught up with Pete early one morning at the museum, coming in from the staff side door, outside which runs the busy State Highway 1 through Dunedin City. There's something really neat about being in a museum outside of visitor hours. The videos and explainers are switched off and there are no other people, so it's quiet and calm. And the lights are kept really dim, so it feels kind of intimate. You're surrounded by these items that have all this history and meaning behind them. And on this morning, Pete takes me to one specific area, the on-air exhibit. We're the museum that tells stories of Otago and Dunedin. We have quite a few key stories that we tell, and one of those key stories is um, broadcasting, so um, radio and television. Uh, and that's why we're standing here in front of a case that talks about radio. Some pieces are early radio telegraphy equipment, not able to transmit voice, simply the dots and dashes of Morse code. Back at the, the turn of the 20th century, there were quite a few people experimenting with the new wireless technology. And a lot of those um, people were teenage boys. They were quite keen on the new technology and they were building little transmitting and receiving devices such as um, some of the ones that we have on display here. So the, the early experimenters were sending and receiving messages in Morse code but Professor Jack had a, a passion to try and send voice and music through the airwaves as well. Pride of place in the main radio display is a transmitter once built by Professor Robert Jack. Now belonging to the University of Otago, 
but which has found its long-term home here. Pete tells me more about Professor Jack and how he got started. Well, he was a Scotsman, um, so he, he was educated in Scotland and in Europe. And he became a, a university lecturer in Belfast for four years before he was appointed as Professor of Physics at the Otago University in 1914. And then after the, the First World War, he made a visit back to the UK and he visited with his brother, who was an electrical engineer, and uh, brought back some pieces to experiment with to try and get uh, music and voice out in the air. This is a test transmission from Otago University. Professor Jack speaking. On the uh, 21st of May 1921, him and his uh, assistant, Jack Sutherland, succeeded in uh, transmitting within their laboratory. And then on the 17th of November 1921, after he'd got permission from the government, he could broadcast further afield. So it was a wee bit of speaking and, and some music played on gramophone records. One of the tunes was, uh, was called Hello My Dearie. To be fair, um, Professor Jack wasn't the only one. There were um, radio operators on ships who were broadcasting and gramophone records around the same time, but Professor Jack certainly was the one who got uh, permission from the government to, um, to get it all started. And uh, yes, yeah, so the radio stations were founded quite soon after. There were three radio stations founded here in Dunedin in 1922, two of them by electrical engineers as part of their businesses, and one by an association a membership association which had a lot of those early pioneers involved in it and that association is kind of still around today. Um, Radio Dunedin is the successor of that organisation so the oldest radio station, surviving radio station in uh, New Zealand and one of the oldest in the world. There's also another important story told in this display case. In 1924 those that were still experimenting with the technology and trying to send messages further and further, finally managed to make contact around the entire world. That contact was made between Frank Bell at Shag Valley Station and a chap in London. So that's another, another anniversary that's coming up in a couple of years. Instantaneous communication around the world is something we kind of take for granted now. But radio is where it started. How exactly does radio work? To understand this, we have to delve into some fundamental physics. To help, I've got a current member of the same department Professor Jack worked in all those years ago. Hi, I'm Harald Schwefel. I'm Associate Professor of Physics at the Department of Physics at the University of Otago. The focus of Harold's research is on optics, lasers, nonlinear optics and quantum optics. And so we're experimentally engaging with light light on lots of different frequencies. We'll get to Harold's work in a bit, but first I wanted to talk to him about radio waves. Now why talk to someone who studies light about sending information using radio waves? Well, they're extremely closely linked. They're both types of electromagnetic radiation. So when we talk about electromagnetic radiation, it is a way that energy gets propagated through space by changing its form from electric and magnetic fields, and that is, can propagate through the space. Electromagnetic radiation is produced whenever a charged particle, 
like an electron, is accelerated or deaccelerated, which is happening all the time, all around us, both in nature, for example, the sun, and in man-made devices, for example, a light bulb. The oscillation of electric and magnetic fields in this radiation acts like a wave that carries energy. So it has a rhythm like a symmetrical wave. It builds up to a peak, it falls down to a trough, and then back up to a peak. How high the peak gets is called the amplitude. The time between each peak is called a wavelength. And if you were standing at a point and could see the waves and count how many peaks pass by you in one second, that would give you the number of full wave oscillations per second. The frequency. So if the radiation has a long wavelength, there is a big distance between the peaks, and therefore a low frequency. And vice versa. If you have a short wavelength, there's very little distance between the peaks, and it is high frequency. This is really important because there's not just one type of electromagnetic radiation. It exists on a massive spectrum, from very long wavelength, low frequency, to very short wavelength, high frequency. And along this spectrum, there are many things that will be very familiar to you. Here is Harold, starting with the very long wavelength end. In the very long range, you have long-range radio, which is used more for communication between submarines and other systems. If you go to, and that, that's kilometer wavelength. Mm. If you go to much shorter wavelength of the meters, domain. We're at the radio waves where we have um, our radio station broadcasting right now at frequencies around 100 megahertz. I mean, 101.4 megahertz where I am in Utiputi. Just going to jump in here and explain. Mega here means 1 million and hertz is that frequency measurement, those wave oscillations per second. It's named after a guy who deliberately created the first radio waves using electric current, which means, yes, if you were standing at a point and could see this wave, a hundred million peaks would pass you by in one second. And yes, Harold did just say that the wavelength here is meters. It is around three meters. But electromagnetic radiation travels very fast. In fact, as fast as the speed of light, which is also part of this spectrum. If you go even shorter, we've come into the domain of microwave radiation, which is more the range where our cell phones communicate with, and we can go shorter and shorter, and at some point we come to visible light, which our eyes can pick up nice and easily. If we then go to UV radiation, then our skin likes to pick this up and we can get sunburn, and even shorter ones, our skin is transparent and we can use it for x-rays and do a scan getting even shorter to gamma rays and we can learn something about the universe. And at that end, it's short wavelength, high frequency and high energy, which is why things like gamma radiation, 
X-rays, UV are damaging to our cells. Yes, exactly. I mean, that was something that Einstein realized that the energy of a high-frequency photon is much, much higher than that of a lower frequency. So if we slide back down the spectrum again into the radio waves area, we're talking about long wavelength and low frequency. And those waves of energy can move through the air and they don't interact much with what they move through, which means that they can transmit over reasonably long distances and then we can pick them up. Yes, that's exactly how a radio station works. You have your antenna somewhere that broadcasts and you're hopefully within the range of sight of these radio waves to pick up the radio signal. It doesn't go everywhere and that's why you need to have multiple stations at some distances apart. So for radio, in your transmitter you've got your carrier wave. Say ours is that 3 meter wavelength 101.4 megahertz frequency wave. What you do then is electronically add your sound information onto that carrier wave. The interview you just did or the song you were playing. This is called modulation. And you can do it in two ways, by adjusting the amplitude of the wave or the frequency of the wave. Hence the terms AM or FM radio. Let's stick with FM. Here you modulate the frequency and the amplitude stays exactly the same. Harold had a neat analogy to help me understand this modulation. You continuously change the wavelength slightly of that carrier. And so it is like having a kid on a swing which swings at a certain frequency and if you wiggle on this swing with your arms and clap to a certain bit, then you basically add a little additional modulation on it which is at a different, much lower frequency than the frequency of your pendulum, of your, of your swing. That's exactly what happens on, on the carrier wave. So you can only put information on it at lower frequencies than with the frequency that you transmit. What happens then is at the receiving end, the radio wave is decoded. The carrier wave is kind of electronically subtracted. And then you're left with the original sound wave encoded as an electrical signal which is then reconverted back to sound by your radio. Honestly, this stuff blows my mind. Can you imagine when this was first being discovered? This way to send information through the air? Of course, all the different radio stations broadcast on slightly different carrier frequencies so that they don't overlap and interfere. There is a spectrum of radio wave frequencies that can be used. But beyond that, the spectrum continues. I'm interested in my research from anything from the visible through the near-infrared to the microwave spectrum. And in particular, the way that currently communication happens, if you download a Netflix video, you will probably get the data from some server in the US. And that information is all sent through an optical fiber where light pulses are encoding the information of that video and so but it happens in pretty much the same format as the FM radio does but just the carrier frequency has changed from 100 megahertz to 200 terahertz and so that is much much 
faster, but it's still the same electromagnetic radiation. Does that then mean you can do more modulation and encode more information at that higher frequency? Yes, I can put much more information on a higher frequency carrier wave. And so it is more efficient to send it through an optical signal. And at the same time, I can send multiple different signals at different carrier waves. So instead of having radio stations on slightly different wavelengths and they're all sending and not crossing over, you can send information through light waves at slightly different wavelengths so that they all send and don't cross over and interfere. Exactly. So that's exactly what happens um, in these submarine optical fiber cables that connect us with the United States and Australia. Why are we using these optical fibers? I mean, usually when you have a flashlight, you point it somewhere, the beam gets larger and larger at some point. So in an optical fiber, the light is constantly reflected inwards. The light is perfectly confined and it has very, very low losses in this material. At a Nobel Prize in 2000... Oh, I should find out this number. Don't worry, Harold, I got your back. It was the 2009 Nobel Prize in Physics, and it was awarded to Charles K. Cow for groundbreaking achievements concerning the transmission of light in fibres for optical communication. The Nobel Prize was awarded for exactly the fact that people realised that glass can have such low absorption that you can send light through kilometres of, of optical fibre without any losses, or without significant losses. Significant losses, yeah. So threading along the bottom of the ocean between America and New Zealand are these optical cables, bundles of hundreds of really thin glass fibres. Glass sounds fragile, but when Harold showed them to me, they're actually amazingly light and flexible. And sending the light with the encoded information at one end of these fibres is a laser. And this is the focus of what Harold has been working on. Now, a quick note here on colour. We humans can only see a portion of all of the electromagnetic radiation that exists. And we call it, well, visible light. And this is a spectrum from red light, which is a wavelength of 700 nanometers, which is really tiny, to violet light, which is a wavelength of 400 nanometers. And all of the colours in between on the rainbow have slightly different wavelengths and therefore frequencies. Infrared light sits just below red with a slightly longer wavelength, which we cannot see. So as we discussed Harold's research, we talk about different colours of light, really meaning different frequencies. And this is mostly just because it was easier for me to think of it that way. So currently we have like the different radio stations, different colours of light that go through the optical fibre. With different colours, it's not really different colours, it's all in the infrared, which we cannot see with our eyes. But we have, basically, it's, it's, it's to imagine that it's different colours with slightly different shades of red on which you basically modulate your information. And currently, every of this channel needs an individual laser, which is perfectly locked to exactly that frequency and you have 100 of them in parallel that sent the information through this channel and our idea was to replace all these 100 lasers with one where we have just one laser but we have we generate a frequency comb 
generate a light source that has one fundamental frequency, but then clearly spaced by a distance of 10 gigahertz, lots of other laser lines, and their distance is, is perfectly aligned. To explain how they go about this, we head to Harold's lab down the hall, and he shows me a setup designed to help non-physicists like me to get it. It looks like a crystal ball. It's, it's basically it, it's basically a crystal ball exactly. So we have a, a laser light that that reflects and gets total internal reflected at the prism underneath it, and then the light kind of magically goes into the orb and forms this straight line around here. And so we can see that the light really is guided on this little ring around here. And the main reason why we put it into glass or into some kind of dielectric is that. There it can undergo total internal reflection. And so we have lossless or nearly lossless reflection happening. And so we can store light for a very long time in it. If I can store light for a long time and I constantly put in light, then I get very high intensity. If you continuously push your kid on the swing, the amplitude gets really, really high. And so that's exactly what happen, happens in these systems. And then when we have really high field intensities, then the material can start behave non-linearly and we can have interaction of light with light. Light can change and you can modulate light with other light or you can do second harmonic generation where the color of light suddenly changes where you go from red to green if you want to do this. Usually light doesn't change its color unless you have a colored window but then you just filter out the sunlight to let certain colors through but you don't really have that if you send red light through a window, it suddenly becomes green. Gotcha. So normally when we're looking at different colors, what we're doing is just filtering out a certain wavelength to only look at that wavelength and that wavelength, say, is red. But what you're doing is taking that red wavelength and converting it to green. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's what we can do. It is just like overtones on a violin in a certain way that we can change the, the frequency, double the frequency and get a different color of light in it. But it also works by mixing different colors. So I can put in microwaves, which have very low wavelength and low energy and add them to near infrared light. And so I get a slightly shifted color from that and that is a trick that we use to generate the frequency comb where this process just happens over and over and over again and so I get 100 laser lines which are slightly spaced from each other. So the frequency comb is linked to this squashing all of the light into the same space? Uh, exactly. The reason why you usually don't see any of these nonlinear effects by looking through light coming through glass is that you need really high field intensities for the material to become nonlinear. And so only by confining the light and the microwaves in a resonance system, where they're resonantly enhanced, where really just this field goes in there and sticks in there, and they are confined to this really tight, small domain. So in a very, very small area, you have very high field intensities then this can happen. And then you can have this nonlinear interaction that generates the frequency comb. Of course, this glass ball that Harold bought from AliExpress, pretty as it looks, is not what he is actually using for his experiments. He uses something 
a lot smaller. And there are these type of resonators that trap the light. Small disks made of a material called lithium niobate. But in reality, our system to generate frequency combs is more... It's a little device which is sitting somewhere on the top of this copper yeah. thing. There is a little shiny thing on the outside around it, which is our resonator, where the light is getting stored in it. We have a little diamond sitting there, a little diamond prism, yeah. which has a high refractive index, makes it nice and sparkly, such that the light can get coupled into our resonator, and we have a microwave feed line that brings in the microwaves to mix the microwaves with the optical light. And then we pick up the optical light in another fiber, optical fiber, and this optical fiber gets into our measurement devices that tell us that we achieved what we wanted to achieve. So in a certain way, we replicated the central laser a hundred times right next to each other in little tiny differences away, exactly spaced by the, let's say, 10 gigahertz that we put in from our microwave source. So, Sounds really powerful. It, it's fun, it's nice. <laughs> and very, could be very useful. It really could be. There is a bit to go before this technique is used to send movies across the Pacific. But if you could replace hundreds of lasers with just one laser using a frequency comb, it would make for a far more efficient internet. A hundred years later, I wonder what Professor Jack would think. This is a test transmission. Thanks to Pete Reed, curator at Toitu Otago Settlers Museum, and to Associate Professor Harold Schwefel from the University of Otago's Department of Physics. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by William Saunders. Tim Watkin is executive producer. Archival audio, including a recreation of the first ever broadcast by Professor Jack, was provided by Natanga Sound and Vision. Sound design in this episode also included two sound files from NASA, chorus radio waves within Earth's atmosphere, and the conversion of light curve waves to sound, as recorded from a star by the Kepler Space Telescope. Thanks to advances in physics and technology, there are many ways to listen to our changing world. RNZ National Radio? Absolutely. But you can also follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or your preferred podcast provider. And not sparing on the options for listening, we've also got a website, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds, where you can access the show's extensive back catalogue. It dates back not quite 100 years, more like 16, but there are hundreds of episodes to choose from. Plus, we've got a monthly newsletter that you can sign up to from this page. And we're also on Facebook or Twitter. We're at RNZ Science. Come and say hi. We were so excited to be given the Gold Award for Best Science and Environment podcast at the inaugural New Zealand Podcast Awards last week. If you are enjoying the show, please do spread the word to your friends and family so that they can get listening too. Aaron said one best publisher, and it's no surprise why. Visit the podcast and series tab on the RNZ website to check out the full range of quality podcasts on diverse topics. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai, to wiki. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.